We have come to the final week of our Asking for a Friend series, which is uh, where you and people from all four of our campuses wrote in questions and said, I've always wondered about this. I've always wondered about some of these things, and we've been trying to answer uh, every one that we possibly could. We got a ton of questions in. Um, and uh, like I said before, the, the way we try and answer these is we go to the Bible, and if the Bible answers it outright, that's the end of that. Um, we'll, that's what the Bible says. But a lot of times we ask questions, and the Bible is either silent or not directly addressing some of these things, and so then we look for principles in the Word of God that can help us to determine a godly answer uh, for this stuff. Um, I've told you about Charter Road Church's eight essential beliefs. On these, we take a stand. We don't vary from those. We encourage you to believe them too, because if you worship with us, and you don't believe in all eight of those, at some point or another, you might be a little uncomfortable here, because we'll talk about those things. Uh, so there's eight essential beliefs. They're on our website, charteroak.church. You're welcome to look at them. Um, beyond that, there are non-essential beliefs or like disputable matters, things that we don't always agree on. There's a ton of these things, doctrinal things, the way that we live our lives, what we consider to be sinful for us and not sinful for us, things like that. They're not condemned by the Bible. They're upheld by the Bible or at least not condemned by the Bible. And so in these, you have liberty. You have liberty to believe as you want to believe on these issues. Um, so we have unity on the eight essentials, we have liberty on the disputable or non-essentials, and this is critical. In everything, we relate to each other with love. We relate to each other in love. Um, most often, not always, but most often, churches split on the non-essentials. Churches split. People's relationships are damaged. Things happen badly related to non-essentials. And so that's why it's so critical that we understand that principle of relating to one another in love as we have liberty to disagree on a few things just in the way that we read scripture. So, the last bunch of questions. Today, the first one, well, the second one, really. How can I minister to my adult, unbelieving children? Um, Parenting is an exact science, so I don't know why this is even up there. You raise your kids, they'll believe in God. End of message, right? I mean, it's, it's cut and dry. No. Parenting is, is, is very inexact science. And you can do all, you, all that you possibly can as a Christian parent to raise your kids like you, want, like you feel like they should go. Like believing in God and following God. And just sometimes, you know, they experience life. They make choices. They, they don't fall into that. So how do you minister to them? Well, first of all, you're not alone because Jesus dealt with this uh, in, in, in his own family. Mark 6, 4 said, Jesus talking says, a prophet is honored everywhere except in his own town, among his relatives, and in his own home. I mean, Jesus had difficulty with his family. Uh, it's hard to minister to, to our family. It, and, it's difficult, and our parenting really never ends, right? Because, I, yes, our kids grow up, but they always need, they always need, whether they admit it or not, they need that experience and that presence and that foundation that we as parents provide to them. Um, 
So the question then is how do we provide that wisdom? How do we provide that guidance in such a way that they'll accept it, right? Because when they become adults, it's often like just leave me alone. I'm an adult now. How can we speak into their lives? Uh, and rather than alienate them, draw them closer to God. So I have some, some thoughts. The first one is that consistency is a key. Uh, consistency is key. See, your life is an open book as a parent, and your family knows you better than almost anybody because they spend so much time with you. So it's important that they see the, the, the ups and downs that you have, the emotions, the actions, and they will see, along with that, they will see inconsistencies in you between what you profess and how you live. So we have to be careful. As a parent, we must be consistent. Model your faith well. Modeling is powerful. Uh, let your kids, whether they're uh, children or whether they're adult, doesn't matter. Let them see you praying and reading your Bible and attending church and living a life obedient to God. Let them see that. 1 Peter 2.12 says this. It says, live such good lives among the pagans. And I think in this case, we're safe to substitute adult children in for pagans. Let them see you living such good lives that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. So you see the impact that modeling has. So as a parent of an adult, unbelieving child, model your faith well. Let them see that. Having said that, you're not perfect. I'm not perfect. And if we make them feel like they have to be perfect, we will drive them away, right? Because it's unattainable. So be transparent. That's the next point. Be transparent. Uh, own your imperfections. Own the fact that you're not perfect. Paul did this. And we read in Romans 7, 24 to 25, he says, What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? And then, thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let your kids see that in action in your life. Let them see your failures. Let them see, though, how you move past them. Okay, let them see your failures, but then let them see how you move past them. Show your regret. Show your sorrow. Express what you have learned through that experience. Talk about God's love and his mercy. And show them how an imperfect person lives a life of obedience to a perfect God. Okay? So, consistency is key. Live your faith well. Model it. But then be, be transparent. When you fail, help them to see the lesson that you have learned through that. Uh, the next thing I would say is take time to point out God moments or talk about Jesus. However you want to say that. There are so many stories of how God has worked in our lives. So take time to talk about that. Weave that into conversation. Um, and just like the, maybe it's answered prayer. Or maybe someone got healed. Or maybe you're able to help somebody through a really tough time. Or maybe in a particular time in your life, a scripture spoke to you so clearly. And it was just what you needed in that moment. So talk about those things with your kids, with your adult, unbelieving kids. Psalm 145, verses 3 to 4 says, Great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. His greatness no one can fathom. One generation commends your works to another. 
they tell of your mighty acts. So tell of his mighty acts. You know, tell your kids about what God has done in your life or what you've seen him do. <laughs> My next point is a word of caution. Don't overwhelm them. Don't overwhelm them. You love your kids. You don't like that they're not following God. I get that. You want to give them tracks and, and drag them to worship and take them to conferences and stuff like that. And it's going to get old to them. And it could alienate them. So walk that line carefully. <laughs> Proverbs 25, 17 says, Seldom set foot in your neighbor's house. Too much of you, and they will hate you. Okay? So just be careful. Do these other things that we've talked about. And then finally, pray. Pray, pray, pray. That, that should have been on the list first, but I wanted a big finish to this list. So here it is. Pray. There's nothing more powerful than prayer than to just lift your kids up into the strong, loving hands of our God. Okay? So, um, next we have three questions that I first want to deal with um, as a group, and then we'll tackle them one at a time. Okay? And these three questions are as follows. It says, why should we wait until marriage to have sex other than because God said so? Why does God say so? The next question is, is it okay for a Christian to drink alcohol? And the next question is, with all the positive things being said about cannabis use or marijuana, is there any reason for a Christian to avoid using it? Boom. Okay. I want to talk about those three things as a whole first. My first reaction when I saw these questions is, why are you asking? Why are you asking? It reminds me of a, of a little boy or something, and, and, and parents say, you cannot go outside without putting on your shoes. So the little boy is like, well, do socks count? Can I put on flip-flops instead? Do you mean the entire outside world or just the backyard? You know, He's not asking so that he can clarify this rule and understand it better so he can comply with it because he trusts his parents for his best interests. <laughs> He's asking these questions to see how much he can get away with before he gets punished. Okay, and I, I want to make sure before we go on with these questions, you didn't ask those questions because you're seeing just how deeply you can dip your toes into worldly living before it becomes sin. That's not how we're supposed to live. The life of a Christian is not just seeing how much we can get away with and still be a Christian. Right? The life of a Christian is to trust God when he tells us to do something because it is for our good instead of rebelling against it. But all that being said, I wanted to like deal with these now. Okay, the first question, why should we wait until marriage to have sex? <clears throat> first of all, Charlotte Church's position, my position, is that sex is a beautiful sacred thing created for a man and a woman in a committed relationship called marriage. That is what sex is. That is why God created sex. It is an exclamation point on a beautiful relationship. Secondly, marriage is a commitment between a man and a woman for life. That's, that's, that's the intention. And it is whatever our culture decides marriage is, we also have to be legal in it. What I'm saying here is that 
You can't just say, well, I promise to be with you. You promise to be with me. We're married. In our culture, that doesn't work. There's a legal document that makes us married. It's God's desire that we, that we go through that and also make this covenantal commitment to each other to be married. Back in biblical times, marriage looked different. The culture was different. Sometimes a man would say, I want your daughter as my wife. But if you read a lot of those accounts, they ask that woman, will you, will you go with him? And she says, yes. And in that culture, that was a marriage. We see the wedding in Cana. There was a ceremony there. There, there was a, some kind of a ceremony happening there for that wedding. I don't know all of the cultural things that marriage has been in the past, but I know what it is in America. And that's what God calls us to do, to be married, as well as make that spiritual heart commitment, covenantal commitment to each other. All right? So before we go on with this, I wanted to get those that, that, that clear. Now, actually, the Bible never says outright, you have to be married to have sex. It never actually 100% says that. But the Bible says things that clearly establish marriage outside of sex as part of a bigger classification called, um, called uh, sexual immorality. Sexual immorality is talked about often in the New Testament. And there are passages that clearly establish sex before marriage or outside of marriage as part of that classification. Here are a couple of scriptures that do that. 1 Corinthians 7.2. But because there is so much sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman should have her own husband. If you read this and look into this, you can see that marriage here is presented as the cure for sexual immorality here. Because there's so much sexual immorality, then have a husband and a wife and then your sexual relations within that marriage is no longer sexual immorality. Okay? We're to avoid that by being married. And then Hebrews 13.4. Give honor to marriage and remain faithful to one another in marriage. God will surely judge people who are immoral and those who commit adultery. And so here we see immorality and adultery as being outside of marriage. So sexual immorality and adultery are contrasted to what happens in the marriage, okay? Sexual union within a marriage is honorable while other sexual activity is not, okay? So sex outside of marriage biblically is a part of sexual immorality, but it goes so much deeper than this. It goes so much deeper than this. There's a long passage. We're not going to look at that up on the screen. In Ephesians 5, 21 to 32, Paul calls on husbands to love their wives just as Christ loved the church. And then he sums up with this statement in Ephesians 5, 31 to 32. He says, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery but I am talking about Christ and the church. Marriage, then, is a profound mystery that is a picture of Christ's love and devotion to his bride, the church. The church is to be presented to Christ as a holy and pure bride. So if we come along and we say sex outside of marriage is not a big deal, then we're saying Christ can use the church 
without making a covenantal commitment to her. And if we say, well, it doesn't matter because we're going to get married anyway, eventually, then we're saying that Christ can make promises to the church without dying for that, for that bride. Both of these are unscriptural. Both of these are unthinkable. Both of those are not reasons to have sex outside of marriage. Okay? Sex outside of marriage is also prohibited by God as part of sexual immorality. And like all things God tells us to do or not do, it's for our good. I want to impress that upon you. It's for our good that he prohibits this. I did a bunch of Googling on the, and, and then looked at things that could be, yeah, Google, whatever, but I, that could be associated with sex outside of marriage. And I made a list of a lot of them, um, and, and I want to go through a, a lot of these. There's pregnancy and disease, of course. I mean, we have those that happen. Sex outside of marriage can cheapen a relationship by having it being built on sex. Okay, a relationship that is based on sex will not last. It just will not. Okay, but it can cheapen relationships to make it to make it based on that. Um, as an expression of love, sex becomes cheapened. In this case, it's it's not special. It becomes an empty physical activity. Sex can also rob you of self worth. You might think less of yourself through it, or others might think less of you. And we see this a lot. A woman becomes known as loose or easy. You know, if, she, if she's having sex outside of marriage a lot. A man can be called, become a player or a, an unreliable relationship risk. No one's going to want to like, bet their lives on a man who's, who's behaving in that way. Um, it can haunt your future relationships, okay? If this is something that's just passing, it's just outside of marriage, it's just sex that you're having with another person, it can haunt your future relationships. It can cause regret and depression and anxiety. It brings about situations where there might be abortion, there might be nightmares, there might be suspicion or trust issues. There's then you come into things like child support, there's, there's adultery, there's anger, there's bitterness. There's health issues, there's troubled children, there's rebellious teens, there's the using of your past against you as a parent. That's a huge one. If your kids, your teens, find out it wasn't a big deal to you, it's not going to be a big deal to them. So it can be used against you as a, as a parent. It can cause teen pregnancies, divorce, addictions. The bottom line of this is that God prohibits, prohibits sex outside of marriage for our good. For our good. And I know it's fun. I know it feels good. I know it's an amazing thing. But that is precisely why God made that that way for you, between you and your life mate. A man and a woman in a committed marriage. And so that's Charlotte Church's stance on sex before marriage and why I believe God said so. Moving on, is it okay for Christians to drink alcohol? Yep. However. <laughs> Don't you know there's a however? Yes, there's a lot of things to think about with that. 
There's a lot of things to think about with that. And I, and I know there are some in here for, for you. It's like any alcohol of any form that's sin, and I respect that. I, I, I respect that completely. Um, but first of all, we have to just kind of look at how the Bible takes us through this. First of all, we're given freedom from the law through our faith in Jesus. Right? We, it is for freedom that Christ set us, that, that Christ set us free. In Galatians 5.1, it says, It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. So we have freedom to make choices like this about how we live as long as we're guided by the Spirit. But we also have a responsibility to use that freedom wisely. To use it wisely. 1 Corinthians 8 and 9. Be careful, however, that the exercise of your rights does not become a stumbling block to the weak. So how and when you have that drink matters. It's not necessarily that the drink itself is wrong, but how and when you have that drink matters. If, for example, you are out to eat with a Christian brother and sister, and they believe drinking alcohol to be sin, as much as you're like, well, I'm not governed by them, I can do what I want, yeah, but in that moment, it's incumbent upon you to forego the drink in order to preserve the relationship with your brother or sister in Christ. That's your responsibility. Scripturally. Don't have the drink. Okay? It's also important to, to make sure that drinking never gains control of you. Never gains control of you. In 1 Corinthians 6.12, it says this, I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but I will not be mastered by anything. So no activity should gain control over us ever, no matter what we're discussing. And, and note that drunkenness and, and intoxication is absolutely prohibited by Scripture. There's so many passages. I just picked one. Romans 13, 13. Let us behave decently as in the daytime, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and debauchery, not in dissension and jealousy. We must not ever, in, in consuming an alcoholic beverage, become compromised, intoxicated, drunk. Absolutely, biblically wrong. And then finally, in this, consider the witness that you're putting forward. And this is so important. And again, it's like... Why do I have to care about what other people think of me? I, I, I'm free in Christ. I want to have a drink. I'm just going to have that drink. Folks, we are witnessing all the time. We are witnessing all the time. When you go to the store, when you go out to eat, when you're at work, when you're at play, when you're at Idlewild, when you're watching the Steelers lose again, you are still witnessing all the time, to the love and the glory of God through Jesus Christ. Always witnessing to that. So, someone sees you preaching or singing on the worship team or whatever on Sunday, and on Friday they see you in a bar drinking. Okay, so maybe you're just having your one drink. That's okay for you. But what are they seeing? Are believers seeing someone who is not committed to Christ, who's living a double life? And even worse, kind of, than that, 
an unbeliever can see you and see again the hypocrisy that we are accused of so much and be so driven from Christ, they will never come to him. It can be that big a deal. So, how does it look when you drink? Who's watching? A lot of Christians uh, who believe it's okay to consume alcohol just won't do it in public. They'll have a beer at their house or at a friend's house or whatever where beliefs are consistent and they'll enjoy it that way or whatever. But the thing is, it's okay to have that drink, but just be very careful when and how you do it. Okay? And then finally, is there a biblical reason to avoid the use of cannabis or marijuana? This was easy back when it was all illegal. Okay, when it was all illegal, we fell back on the biblical principle to obey governmental authority, right? Obey, obey those who have been put in, in authority over you. If the government said it's wrong, if laws said it's wrong, then as a Christian, unless it compromised our walk with God, we obeyed that. But now, with CBD oil being I mean, legal almost everywhere, and recreational use of marijuana becoming more and more commonly okay, it gets a little more murky. And frankly, it gets a little more murky. Marijuana has been around a long time. Okay, it's been around a very long time. It's been used recreationally and it's been used medicinally for thousands of years. It's one of the oldest crops that humans have ever have ever grown. They found paraphernalia as far back as 2,500 years ago. So what that means is it was around and in use when the Bible was written. It was around and it was in use when the Bible was written, but the scriptures are utterly silent on that. At least I couldn't find any that dealt directly with like marijuana or other plants that caused those kinds of effects. So does that mean we're good to go? Not necessarily. And maybe more likely, probably not. Okay, let's talk about it. I want to talk about it. Some points to consider. About 90% of people who use marijuana do not go on to, 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 uh, to fall into a real addiction to it. About 90% of people who use marijuana don't fall into an addiction to it, but about 30% of people who use it come to want its effects. Okay, you can say, well, that's an addiction. No, I don't mean it's like they have to have it, but they enjoy the effects and they want to do it again. Okay, so it is um, desirable, and it, and it does have some kind of, uh, of a desire for its effects that's associated with it. So again, I refer to 1 Corinthians 6.12, just to remind us of that. I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but I will not be mastered by anything. So we have a biblical mandate to avoid anything which can negatively have power and control over us. That's for alcohol, that's for marijuana use. Okay, we have that mandate. Now, marijuana can produce effects that are similar to intoxication and more often compromise judgment. So while the Bible is silent on getting high, okay, it is vocal about avoiding intoxication, right? I mean, it's vocal about that. So it's reasonable to apply that principle here. Any dosage that creates impaired judgment or intoxication in you is to be avoided, is to be avoided. Now, while avoiding intoxication is fairly easy with the consumption
consumption of alcohol. I mean, if you're not addicted to it, if you're not an alcoholic, having a glass of wine, having a beer, uh, maybe one mixed drink, I don't know. It, it depends on you and your tolerances. It's fairly easy to judge how that is going. It's not that way with marijuana. Depending on your weight and other factors, you can become high after four to eight puffs on a marijuana cigarette. That's just, that's just a, a, a fact. It can get, it can, you can become that way that quickly. So you have to be careful with the use of it. There are some health issues with marijuana, not massive ones, but there's irritability and anxiety, loss of sleep, there's mood swings, there's depression. And we're told in 1 Corinthians 6, 19 to 20, do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit, who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. As believers, our bodies have become temples of the Holy Spirit, and anything that brings harm to it, anything that compromises that, is something that we have to avoid. Okay? What about CBD oil? It has a lot of therapeutic effects. Um, the best CBD oils contain less than 0.3% of THC. THC is the part of marijuana that's hallucinogenic. Okay, so good CBD oil, at that level or below, it's fairly safe that you won't become impaired through the use of CBD oil. So this is definitely a non-essential belief, folks. This is de definitely a disputable belief. You have the liberty to decide this yourself. Some believe that anything coming from the marijuana plant is sinful, and I can understand that, absolutely. I believe it's dangerous. Personally, I believe it's dangerous, just like alcohol is dangerous. If you're good at it, <laughs> if you're good at the one drink and stop, if you're good at using CBD oil or whatever, if there's no intoxication, if there's no drunkenness, if there's no impairment of judgment, if there's no intoxication, if there's no ruining of relationships between you and others through it, if there is no compromising of your witness through the use of it, go for it. Go for it, okay? Be careful and just consider your witness. And then finally, our last question of the day, we're changing gears here. How am I both righteous and a sinner at the same time? How am I both righteous and a sinner at the same time? This is a great question. We are definitely sinners who deserve God's wrath and his punishment. And we are saved children of God, declared righteous because of Christ's death and resurrection on the cross on our behalf. We are those things at the same time. First, the sinner part. We do that all by ourselves. Okay? We don't need God's help to be sinners. We are born sinners. We are far from God. Without, without the death of Jesus Christ on the cross, there is not one thing we can do to climb the righteousness ladder to get any closer to heaven. Nothing we do counts. They're filthy rags. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's where we are. Nothing we do counts. So where does righteousness come in? God declares us righteous. God declares us righteous. This is his doing. 
He declares us righteous in his sight because of Christ's death and resurrection on the cross. That pays the penalty for all sin, for all time, available to anybody who chooses it. That's how we are righteous. So we are, at once, both sinners and saved by grace and declared righteous. We see this dichotomy, this, this war at work in Romans 7 and 8, where Paul laments the fact that he does that evil that he doesn't want to do. He said, man, all this stuff I don't want to do, that's what I do. But the good I want to do, I don't do that. And he's, we've talked about it before. What a wretched man I am, he says. But at the same time, he rejoices that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, this wasn't that he was one way and now he's another way. These are both presented at the same time. Okay? This is an ongoing struggle for him. This is an ongoing struggle for us. When we put our faith in Jesus Christ, we are made new. We are a new creation. We have the spirit living in us, which now, in various times and in various ways, it is at war with our sin nature. Even though we're crucified with Christ and we're buried, that sin nature can climb down off the cross and can cause havoc. And we have that war in us. And we can sit there and we can be like, I knew the good I should have done and I didn't do it. But I did this, which is not God's will for me. I don't, I, ugh, I hate, what a wretched person I am. Thank you, God, for that sacrifice through Jesus Christ that declares me righteous in your sight. Thank you, God. Paul fought his sinful nature every day, and he sometimes lost that battle. We fight our sinful nature every day, and we sometimes lose that battle. And we call it sin. It's sin. But every day, he rejoiced that there's now no condemnation for him. Every day, we rejoice that there's now no condemnation for us. He's been set free from slavery to sin and declared righteous in God's eyes through the faith and the work of Christ on the cross. And that's how we are. What a cause for rejoicing. What a cause for rejoicing. I hope you feel that. I hope you realize that. What a cause for rejoicing. We were without hope, without recourse, and God reached down and rescued us. That if we put our faith in Jesus Christ, we are declared righteous in his sight. What an amazing gift. What an incredible gift that God, God has given us. He loved us so much, he paid that ultimate price, that penalty for sin for all time, and declared us righteous. And he enables us to have this wonderful relationship with him because of that. Folks, our baptism is a sign of that. Our baptism symbolizes what has happened there. When we get down into that water, we're the old person that we were without hope. When we are lowered into the water, that is our faith in Jesus Christ washing us clean. And when we come up out of the water, we are a new creation in Christ. Yeah. And I want to ask you just today, remember your baptism. Think about your baptism and what it symbolizes. It didn't save you, but it testified to the fact that you are. Yeah. And what a cause for rejoicing. What a cause for rejoicing that is. Today we can remember our baptisms and be joyful for all that God has given us. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray.
Lord God, I just, I thank you that there is just this parental nature in you, God, that wants our good, that wants our safety, that wants us, uh, Lord, to, to, to walk in paths of safety and in righteousness. God, that we, uh, that you save us from ourselves, basically. And I just thank you for it. You're an incredible God. We love you. We praise you. Some things are hard to hear. Some things mean we have to make adjustments in our lives. I don't know, but God, it's all worth it because you're God and you know best and you know the path you have for us and you have a plan for us and I am so thankful for it. Thank you for sending Jesus. Thank you, God, for rescuing us from ourselves. Thank you for setting us into this wonderful relationship with you. And thank you for the plans that you have for each one of us uniquely in our own gifting and way. We praise you in Jesus' name.